You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's sermon is preached by Nate Penley. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The plan this morning is to cover the introduction to the epistle to the Romans. And at an initial glance, one might think that covering the introduction to the letter should be pretty simple, straightforward, and best of all, quick. But as we see in this letter, uh, the first word here is Paul. And this means there's definitely going to be more to this intro than meets the eye initially. As a matter of fact, some of my favorite theologians have spent anywhere from three to twelve sermons on these seven verses. Seven verses, twelve sermons. And if you're a grammar Nazi, you would have noticed that the first period doesn't come till verse seven. Meaning that that is one sentence. Once again, twelve sermons on one sentence. And while I don't plan to try to outdo the great Mar- Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon count on this section of Scripture, I think the fact that one is able to preach that many sermons on this text does in fact show that there's a wealth of content that could be mined from this passage. But please don't worry. I do not plan on preaching for the next 12 weeks in these seven verses. But I do in fact have a lot of ground to cover, so let's jump right in. At the beginning of this text, we see that Paul is identified as the writer of this text. And right there is a whole potential sermon. Much could be said about Paul. He actually gives himself quite a description in the first verse. But before we even look at that, I don't want for us to assume that we all here are familiar with the narratives of Scripture, so I want to spend a little time setting the stage. Who is this man called Paul? Where did he come from? Where is he going? And why does he love run-on sentences so much? If you embarked on a journey to read through the whole Bible, you would read nearly 75% of the Bible before you even came across this character named Paul, who, strangely enough, ended up writing the vast majority of the last 25% of scriptures. So who is this guy? Well, first time that we come across this, this character is in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. And here we see that the first time he is mentioned by name, he was holding the coats of the angry mob that was stoning Stephen for his faith. Paul, who was also known as Saul, was a zealous Jew in the line of the Pharisees. He was a man that apparently never crossed paths with Jesus while he was on earth, but had heard of the ruckus and noise that his disciples were making in the surrounding areas. And Paul took offense to this. These followers of Christ were proclaiming a message that was offensive to the Jews. 
This message was one of repentance and faith. And the Jews did not like this message. Being called to repent of their sin? To put their faith in a Messiah that had to die? That had to die for their failure to follow the law of Moses? Paul did not want to hear this. He didn't want to hear that he had failed to keep the law. In fact, he thought he was the chief of law keepers. He thought that he had all that he needed to inherit the kingdom of God through the power of his flesh. He says about, so he says this about himself in his epistle to the church of Philippi, where he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he thought he was blameless. And it was this attitude of pride that fueled Paul in his desire to righteously execute those so-called Christians. Their message was one of repentance of sin, and Paul took offense to this. He didn't see himself as a sinner. He had his stuff together. He didn't need help. He had all the right cards dealt to him. He was a Jew, after all. He was in the line of Benjamin. He had kept the law zealously, and he didn't need to repent. He needed to be promoted. In fact, his heart was so hardened with what he thought was a righteous anger that he felt little to no remorse at dragging men and women out of their homes to be imprisoned and executed simply for having faith in Christ. He hated Christ so much that he was willing to kill others for the, their belief in Christ. This is Paul that is writing this letter to the church at Rome. But as we see here in the first verse of Romans, Paul no longer sees himself this way. He actually describes himself as a servant of Christ. The ESV translates this term as servant, but the Greek word doulos here is actually better translated as slave. And that is certainly what the Roman culture would have taken this word to mean. It was meant to imply ownership. Paul is claiming that he is in fact owned by Jesus Christ. He is owned by the very person that he used to call his mortal enemy. He used to be the maker of his own destiny, but now he views himself as someone who is to do only the bidding of his owner. What could have possibly been the cause for this change of heart? Well, this is where we would learn from Acts 9 that Jesus, and this was after he had ascended into heaven, that Jesus rescued Paul from his sinful state. Paul was quite literally headed down the path for destruction. It says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But on his way, Jesus stopped him. Jesus appeared to Paul in a bright light and ended up causing physical blindness to Paul. God opened his spiritual eyes by closing his physical eyes. And then Jesus caused Paul to see the error of his way and turn from his path of destruction to the service of Christ. So it is here that we see that God is the primary agent for Paul's conversion, who is, let's just be honest, an extremely unlikely convert. During Jesus' time on earth, he confronted Pharisee after Pharisee with miraculous signs and wonders, followed by the truth of God. But very few of them actually responded to Jesus with faith. Most actually had their hearts hardened as Jesus revealed himself to them. And Paul was in this camp of people that had a heart that was hard. And if it were up to you or me, would we have chosen Paul? Would we have chosen to redeem a self-righteously wicked person like Paul in order to accomplish the spread of the gospel throughout the globe? Likely not. 
But God's ways are greater and wiser than ours could ever be. And so God in his infinite wisdom chose to purchase Paul and use him to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul has made a complete 180-degree turn and gone from enemy of Christ to being his humble slave. So when Paul speaks in chapter 3 later of Jews and Greeks being under sin, this is something that he has intimate knowledge of. He understands what it is to have a heart that is hard as stone. He understands what it is to have deaf ears and blind eyes that cannot understand the truth of God. He was deaf and blind spiritually with a heart of stone. But God purchased him and revealed himself to Paul in a special way. And this is something that we should all be able to identify with in Paul. All of us that claim Jesus Christ as our Savior should be able to understand that we were like Paul. We were dead in our sins, helpless, and unable to approach or even pursue the righteousness of God. Just like Paul, we are all born working towards our own destruction, unable to see our need for a Savior. Even though it is plainly obvious that we're all sinners, we still don't think that we're in need of saving. We deny the righteous judgment of God that is sure to come. But then, God chooses to intervene on our behalf. He chooses to open our eyes so that we can see our need for him, causing us to see our need to turn from our sin and put our faith in him to redeem us. This is the way that God works in all of us. And once God has completed his work of regeneration in our lives, then we too become his slaves. And what a generous and gracious master he is. What a joy and privilege it is to serve the only one who is worthy. This is the way that God works in all of us. And once God has completed his work of regeneration in our lives, then we too become his slaves. So, uh, but then we see beyond Paul's conversion, he was also called for a special purpose for God. We see that he was called to be an apostle. And I won't certainly assume that we all here uh, know what an apostle is, so I'm going to take some time to establish what exactly an apostle is. Literally translated, the word apostle just means the one who is sent. And there is certainly a sense in which all of us are sent ones from Christ. We are all called to be ambassadors of Christ, after all, in that we speak on the behalf of Christ. We are to proclaim his truth to all. We are to represent Christ well with our attitude and our behavior. But this term apostle that is used here is something much more than just that. So this begs the question, what is it? Well, this takes us to the topic of authority. And that is what Paul is claiming here. He is claiming authority over the church. He is not just an ambassador for Christ in the general sense that all believers are. He is an ambassador that has received direct revelation from God and was then charged with proclaiming this message. Just like a messenger from the king, he would carry a decree with a seal stamped on it from the king, deliver it to whomever the king wanted. And if you receive this letter, you had better take time to read it carefully. And likewise, when Paul speaks, he speaks on behalf of our king, which means we should listen to his words. Because they are not just Paul's words, they are in fact the very words of God to his church. This was the primary job of an apostle, to establish the church by instructing it with the very certain words of God. Just like the prophets of old, from Moses to David to Elijah, 
to Malachi, these prophets were charged with speaking the very words of God to the chosen nation of Israel. And just like us, all the Israelites were charged with representing God to the entire world all around them. But the prophets were charged with a special task of being the mouthpiece of God to his people. But how were the people to know that these prophets were speaking the very words of God, you might ask, and not just making things up for their own benefit? Well, most often the words of God were also accompanied by undeniable supernatural signs and wonders. These prophets that were filled with the Spirit in a unique way were able to perform miracles with such power that it was apparent to all that God was with them. And so these prophets were to be respected and submitted to because when the Lord, because when they spoke to Israel, they were speaking the message, thus says the Lord. And when the Lord speaks, you need to listen. To make sure that this message from the Lord wasn't lost, they then wrote it down. This way, the authoritative words of God would be passed from one generation to the next. Just as God raised up prophets for the nation of Israel, so Jesus raised up apostles for the church. God made a covenant with Abraham and continued to give his descendants the instruction needed to establish his nation through the prophets. But now that Jesus has come to establish his new covenant, he was going to raise up apostles in order to establish his church. Just like the prophets before them, the apostles were given the Holy Spirit to perform many signs and miracles as a way of authenticating that their message was from God. And Paul certainly was able to do just that. A tour through the book of Acts would prove that he was able to perform many signs and wonders. And this was clear to all that he came into contact with. It was clear that he was truly sent from God. And as most of you know by now, that Paul went on to write a huge portion of the New Testament, which was then used by God to establish his church. So what does this have to do with authority, you might ask? Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It is truly amazing that after all these years, God has miraculously preserved the words of these prophets and apostles in his holy scriptures. And this is the essence of what that verse in Ephesians is telling us, that these words that were written by the apostles and prophets are in a position of authority over us. So when Paul writes to the church that is in Rome, he is exercising his God-given authority over the church. And what is it that Paul has been charged with telling the church of God? He says right at the end of verse 1, Paul has been specifically set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God chose Paul and set him apart for a special task, to proclaim the gospel of God that God has given him directly. This didn't come from any human authority. It came from God. God converted Paul with the gospel. Now he has charged Paul to proclaim this message far and wide. And so now, now that we can see the purpose of God raising up apostles, which was for the building of the church, and we can see how he did it by giving the authoritative word to them, and we can see how their positions were authenticated, which was through their miraculous signs and wonders that were empowered by the Holy Spirit, well, this should help us be able to identify the false apostles that are out there. 
I think the easiest way of spotting a false apostle today is simply by identifying anyone who calls himself an apostle. You show me someone who calls himself an apostle, and I'll show you a false teacher who should never be listened to. The office of apostle was given to a limited, select few who were charged with equipping the church with the very words of God. But as that was accomplished, the office apostle of apostle has died off with the men that were charged to hold the position. Does this mean that we no longer have apostolic authority over the church? Absolutely not. I hold in my hands apostolic authority. I am proclaiming apostolic authority over the church right this very minute. The words of the Apostle Paul have been miraculously preserved for us today, and this is our apostolic authority right here. It has been authenticated, it has been proven, and it continues to persevere, to convict, and to convert. But there are many today that claim some form of apostleship for themselves. One example is the Pope claims to have an apostolic succession tracing all the way back to Peter. The claim goes something like this. Peter was the chief apostle that had a chief authority over the church, and Peter's chief office position was then passed down through time, with some always occupying this position of chief authority. There's always someone in this position. And one of the jobs of this chief authority is to divinely interpret all of these words that the apostles have left us. This is truthfully why Catholics are not encouraged to read their Bibles. Who do you think you are going right to the words of the Apostle Paul? Did you get permission from the Pope first? In the end, you can see how this actually places the Pope above the authority of the Apostles because they believe that they are in charge of interpreting the words that the Apostles have left us. But hopefully, as you can see, this is a usurping of authority. Paul Peter and the rest of the apostles have spoken definitively to the church of God. And they left this book for us so that we can go directly to them under their authority. So these words should be cherished. Meditate on these words because these words are profitable. They're equipping and they are powerful. We do not need anyone's permission to go to our authority in the word of God. So that is one example of a false apostolic teaching of authority. But there are other examples. Most of them come from the charismatic camp that also often claims some sort of apostleship. And they base these claims of apostleship of their supposed ability to perform miracles while being filled with the Spirit. But honestly, it takes very little investigation into these so-called apostles, and it will quickly be discovered that all of these miracles are nothing like what the apostles of Scripture accomplished. The miraculous signs of the prophets and apostles were undeniable. The blind could see, the deaf could hear, the lame could walk, the lepers were cleansed in an instant. And the apostles of scriptures did this publicly for all to see in the town squares, in front of everyone. They often sought out the sick, and most importantly, they did it for free. <laughs> Mind-boggling. If you've ever found yourself tuning into TBN at 3 a.m. in the morning, I'm pretty sure you've noticed pretty quickly that these modern-day apostles certainly don't operate like the apostles of old. Heal your sickness for free? Right here in the middle of the hospice wing of the hospital? <laughs> That's definitely not how the Holy Spirit of TBN works. 
That Holy Spirit needs the money up front. Obviously, there seems to be a discrepancy with the apostles of today and the apostles of old. I have yet to see one of these healers walk into a hospital, send everybody home with a clear bill of health, and then call all to faith and repentance instead of asking for money. No, these apostles today are not like the apostles of Scripture. Most of these charlatans are actually just preying on simple-minded people that are hurting. And then they take all their money, while at the same time giving them a bunch of empty promises. It truly is a wicked practice. And then finally, there are others that just claim apostleship in their church, simply as a way of manipulating others in their local church setting. How can you argue with your pastor if he's claiming some form of apostleship? Well, the short answer is you can't. And quite frankly, you shouldn't. As I said before, if you see someone that is claiming apostleship, you need to run and then warn everyone else to mark and avoid. But back to Paul. We see here a more full description of Paul's calling in Acts 9.15. When God tells Ananias that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. And this is also confirmed in Paul's epistle to Galatia when he tells the church there that when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. For my teens that were here as we went through our Sunday school class in Galatians, hopefully this is hot on your mind, the context here. Hopefully they'll remember that Paul is establishing that his authority comes directly from God. Not from other apostles, not from the church in Jerusalem, not from traditions, but directly from God. And the special job that God had specifically called Paul to do is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And notice in verse 2 that this gospel was promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. For those of you that have been here through our summer journey through the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, this phrase is something that should be triggering your, triggering your memory cells. We saw this summer that the prophet Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, he tells us in Genesis 12 that God made a covenant with Abraham where he was promised three things. Land, seed, and lesson. In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And once again, hopefully the teens that were there from my Galatians class, remember that Paul points out in Galatians that this promise right here, that in this promise of blessing, we see a seedling of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 3, 8-9, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. And a couple of verses later, Paul calls Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham. And he says that he came so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so we see back in our text in Romans that the Apostle Paul is God's chosen instrument 
to extend his blessing to all nations and preaching the gospel to all the nations. Jesus Christ is the blessing for the whole world and Jesus commissioned Paul to spread this message to the Gentiles or you could say to the whole world. This gospel message was always the plan from the very beginning. The message of physical birth into the family of Abraham through the sign of circumcision is of little importance compared to the spiritual birth into the family of God through the sign of faith. And this was always God's plan. Since the very beginning, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God promised to crush the head of the serpent through the seed of Eve. And then God revealed more of this promise to Abraham. Through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. Then God's redemptive promise gets even more specific with King David. What does Paul say here in verse 3? He says that the son who was promised from the very beginning has come now in the flesh through the line of David. Now this is a topic that we could probably spend several days on if we wanted to. We could turn to passages like 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23. Quite frankly though, even just being familiar with the whole life and story of David is important for understanding God's redemptive plan in history. And the life of David actually takes up a significant portion of the Old Testament that we should all be familiar with. But for today's purposes, I just want to quickly look at the passage in Jeremiah 23, 5-6, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. And so we see here that it was prophesied that God would raise up a king in the line of David. And Paul is telling us here in verse 3 that this is what happened with the person of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, specifically Matthew 1 and Luke 3, we see that both of Jesus' earthly, or you could say fleshly, parents have lineages that come from David. This is how Jesus entered the world, through the line of David, thus fulfilling what the prophets of old had prophesied about, that Jesus, the one promised to Adam and Eve, and the one promised to Abraham, and the one promised to David, Paul says that he has come in the line of David, and he has appeared in the flesh. First, this is important as a proof that Paul's gospel is in alignment with the prophets of old. Jesus coming in the line of David is fulfillment of the Davidic promises that, were, that we see in the Old Testament. This is not a new gospel message. In fact, the gospel that Paul has received is in perfect alignment with what was foretold in the Old Testament. And the fact that Jesus has fulfilled his kingly role coming in the line of David is one of the proofs that God's message of the gospel has been consistent from the very beginning. Verse 3 also says that Christ came according to the flesh. This means that, simply speaking, Christ was 100% human. God entered into his creation by coming down to earth and wrapping himself in human flesh. If we had time, I would love to turn over to Philippians 2 or we could do a deep dive into the process of Jesus, who is fully God, demonstrating his obedient relationship with the Father, came to earth in the flesh, proving he was also fully man. 
But unfortunately, we don't have time to, so I won't do that now. But one of the things that Paul is establishing here in verse 3, that Jesus was the God-man. Jesus was 100% God, as we already know, and he came in the flesh, so he is 100% man. Now, there's an element to this where we won't ultimately be able to understand. We'll be limited to our understanding in some degree because I'm sure my fellow mathematicians are going to tell me that 100% plus 100% does not equal 100%. And on paper, according to natural, natural mathematical rules, they would be correct. But God is not bound by our rules. He is supreme. He is limitless. He is unique. He is holy. And that means that somehow he is able to become a man, grow as a man, learn as a man, experience life as a man, but at the same time, he never ceased being divine. His divinity remained intact, while at the same time, there is some sense in which he emptied himself, as we see in Philippians 2. And so how does the nature of God work together? Well, as I said, there's going to be a sense in which we're going to be limited in our understanding, but that shouldn't alarm us. In fact, God, if God were something that my simple brain could comprehend, then his power wouldn't be by definition limited. But because he is more than I can comprehend, that is a testament to his greatness, his uniqueness, his holiness. There is no one like our God. But Paul mentions Christ's humanity here in this, and this is crucial to the message of the gospel. Because Christ's humanity is crucial for the atonement. And the doctrine of atonement is central to the gospel. Later, in chapters 4, 7 through 8, Paul will quote David in saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. At this point in Paul's epistle, he has established that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because none of us are righteous as God is righteous. And this is why the doctrine of atonement is crucial to the gospel. Pertaining to the atonement, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this is the important part right here. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that glorious? Because he laid down his life for ours and took on the penalty for our sins that we could never repay, we can be righteous. We can be reconciled to God. This is the very heart of the gospel. Your sins can be forgiven through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, who was actually able to fully pay the debt that he was owed by our sins. This does beg a question. How was Jesus able to pay our debts? Well, the humanity and divinity of Jesus is crucial for this to be accomplished. Since the debt was owed by mankind, then the debt must be paid by man. Thus, Jesus humbled himself by taking on the form of a man 
and living a perfect life so that his offering of himself wouldn't be blemished. He could give himself as the perfect sacrifice because he lived as a human without ever sinning. But how is this even possible for Christ to live a perfect life? How could a man live a sinless life? Man is cursed after all. Well, this could only be accomplished by God himself, the God-man. And his humanity is an easy thing to prove. All that was needed is to look at his flesh. The birth and life of Christ is easily one of the most provable things in all of history. There are more records of eyewitnesses, testimonies, and historical recordings to Jesus' life than any other person in history. Even the most atheistic, God-hating people out there wouldn't dare deny the fact that Jesus existed in the flesh as a man, that he died in the first century, and that the early church regarded him as the God in the flesh. Some have tried to deny his resurrection, but quite frankly with little success. Even the first century Jewish historian Josephus admitted that Jesus had risen from the dead, but still denied him as Lord and Savior. Can you imagine that? Being that blind to the obvious truth that is all around you? He believed that Jesus appeared to his disciples alive on the third day after his death, and that Jesus performed miraculous signs and wonders, yet he did not receive him as Christ. We're actually going to get a better understanding of this spiritual blindness when we get to verses 18 through 23 of chapter 1. But we're going to keep moving on for, for the time, time being. So as Paul says in verse 4, that Christ's resurrection declared to all Jesus' position of divine authority. It declared to all throughout history that Jesus is the Son of God. He started out in the line and inheritance of a fleshly king, but now has been promoted to a place of divine authority over all as Jesus Christ being our Lord. The God-man died to pay for the sins of his children, but now, through the power granted to him through the work of the Holy Spirit, Christ has been elevated, declaring him Lord over all. And it is because of this that we call him our Lord. He is the only one worthy to bear the title of Lord. He has accomplished what he set out to do with perfection. All that the Lord pleases to do, he does. Jesus is Lord. The resurrection was absolutely crucial to Jesus' authority over all. Later in chapter 10, verse 9, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's hard to quantify just how absolutely radical this teaching was in its day. And in fact, it continues to be radical even today. Remember that Paul is writing to the church in Rome during the time when Rome reigned supreme in the land. During this time, Caesar attempted to unite the lands in a polytheistic, pluralistic manner. Each region or city was allowed to have a certain freedom to organize their region and laws according to their preferred religion and customs. They were allowed to serve their individual choice of gods so long as they would hail Caesar as Lord over all. Caesar attempted to claim a level of divinity over all of his subjects. And it was through this shared loyalty to Caesar 
that unity was achieved throughout all the land. It was the thing that they were all supposed to share in common. It was supposed to give them all a sense of unity despite their differing regional cultures and religions. They would all hail Caesar as Lord over them all. This was the price of being under the rule of the Roman Empire. Pluralism was the religion of Rome with Caesar over all. And if we aren't careful, we can very quickly gloss right over this very crucial statement that we find in the end of verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And remember, the entire church was to be an ambassador for Christ. They were to call everyone to bow the knee to Christ. And everyone means everyone, all the way up to Caesar himself. According to the early Christians, Caesar was under the authority of Christ because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is over all. And if you know your early church history, then you know that many faithful Christians died for this very belief. Why couldn't these early Christians just get with the program? Caesar didn't say they couldn't worship their God in the privacy of their own region or in their own homes. In effect, they had freedom of religion. All they had to do was say, Caesar is Lord. They didn't even have to believe it. They could just say it, and then they could have a faithful presence in their community. I mean, after all, hadn't these early Christians read Romans 13? Paul told them to submit to Caesar, right? Well, actually, most of the early Christians were very familiar with Romans 13. But I assure you that they were able to put Romans 13 in its proper context by reading chapters 1 through 12 first. And our understanding of authority should start right here in the introduction, which clearly says that Jesus is our Lord. But I'm trying not to get too far ahead of myself. We'll get there eventually. Uh, eventually, not today, hopefully over the next couple of months, or it might even take a couple of years at the rate we're going to go through Romans here. But I don't want you to miss the significance of this opening statement that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Paul, as an authoritative apostle, was instructing the church on how they were to view Christ. And not only that, he was instructing them as, an, as ambassadors of Christ on what their message to the surrounding world was to be. And this was his message. Jesus is Lord. And make no mistake, this statement was costly. It would literally cost Christians their lives in the first century, and truthfully, it continues to be costly today. This statement doesn't just have political implications, but social as well. There has been, and always will be, a cost for following after Christ. To be part of God's kingdom, one must declare Jesus as Lord, and this means that anyone that has not bowed the knee to Christ should be instructed to do so as if their life depends on it, because it does. Friends, co-workers, family members, they all need to be called to declare Jesus as their Lord. If you have not declared Jesus as your Lord, as Lord of your life, what on earth are you waiting for? He is the God-man who has literally proven his power over death he has proven that his power is limitless by his resurrection from the dead. There is nothing that he does not have the power over. And there is no one who does not owe him their allegiance. So if you have not bowed the knee to Christ yet, then bow the knee today. Declare that Jesus Christ is your Lord. Turn from your sin, put your faith in the only God-man that is able to pay for your sins, and then you can be declared righteous before God. You will be given Christ's righteousness. 
You will not have to carry around the guilt and weight of your sin because you will be forgiven. You will now be part of His family. He will be your Heavenly Father and He will give you the grace that you need. In verse 5, we see that God is the one that gives grace to His apostles. The, the term we here in verse 5 is in reference to the apostles of the church. And so it's important to note that even the apostles receive grace the same way that we all do. It is entirely an act of God. The apostles were sinful men just as we are. They, are need, they needed the grace of God to make them righteous just the same way that we do. Remember in the first verse that even though Paul demands authority as an apostle, he does it as a slave of Christ, who was purchased through the same atoning work of Jesus that we all need. And the office of apostle is received in the exact same way. It comes directly from God. Once again, Paul is reminding the church that his authority comes directly from God. But why has God chosen to give grace to a few select men and then establish them as an authority for the church? In the end of verse 5, we see the answer to this question. It is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Well, there you have it. God has produced his authoritative words through the authoritative office of the apostles in order to produce obedience. Oh wait, I mean to produce faith. Wait, that doesn't seem right. It says obedience of faith. What does that even mean, Paul? I think maybe, maybe Paul made a mistake here. If you're like me, then you grew up your whole life hearing that works can't save you. Only faith can save you. While this is certainly a true statement, it's important that we properly define what faith is. Faith is a choice, you might say. And while there's truth there, when we try to rectify faith as a choice here with the text we have right in front of us, something about it doesn't jive. Especially when we affirm the statement that works can't save you. So what do I mean by this? If we make faith merely a choice that only you can accomplish for yourself, if you do that, then you apply it to this verse, well, then that makes faith a work that you are supposed to obediently submit to in order to be saved. If this were true, then we're all in a lot of trouble. Since the scriptures clearly state that no one seeks after God. And if no one seeks after God, then how is it that I can even choose to have faith in God? The simple answer is that you can't on your own. And so this really puts us in a pickle. We are all born dead in our sins, and we will all remain there until God chooses to intervene on our behalf, just as he did with Paul. Paul was headed down the path for his own destruction, but God intervened. God opened his spiritual eyes by closing his physical ones. And let's be honest, that is most often how God grabs our attention, through some kind of hardship. Often, God will use some kind of hardship to shake the spiritual blinders off of our eyes, and when God decides to pull the trigger on this gracious act, he doesn't miss. He will open the, the eye, your eyes to truth. He will grant faith that is obedient. It is in this manner that we can see that faith is more than a choice. Faith includes my choice, but faith is ultimately a gift from God. 
Faith or God is the one who works by ordaining the preaching of his word about the truth of his son. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes spiritually so that we can see and receive his truth. And when this happens, God does not fail to keep his promise. And his promise is this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And as we have seen in the life of Abraham this past summer, God was faithful to Abraham. Over and over, God proved his faithfulness to Abraham. And, the, and then, as a result of God's faithfulness, we got to see a picture of what true saving faith was in Abraham. It was a faith that started out small and had to grow. It was a faith that produced obedience. It was a faith that persevered to the end. It was a true faith that was counted to him as righteousness. This is why James says that faith without works is dead. A true faith cannot be completely separated from obedience. And this is why faith must first be understood as a gift from God. And thankfully, God is gracious to us in providing even the faith necessary for salvation. And after God does that, he will complete his work in you, providing the obedience as well. This way, all the glory goes to God as it should. And this message of gospel goodness is not just limited to the Jews as descendants of Abraham, but it is a blessed gift to all nations, including those wretched Romans. And it includes those wretched Americans. It even includes those wretched Northeastern PA folks. Jesus Christ has called his children out of all nations, all people groups from all times. There is no one that God cannot save. And we'll see here later in this chapter that many of these Romans were so far buried in their sin that their situation seemed hopeless. But the gospel of God is able to draw all people out of their sinful situations because God is mighty to save. Having said all this, if you have not declared Jesus as Lord of your life, what is keeping you? God has revealed himself in creation. He revealed himself more by coming to earth as a man. He came to atone for the sins that his children have committed, and now he is calling for our obedient faith. So what is keeping you? I think I missed some of these. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Are you called? Then respond today. You belong to Jesus. And that is who Paul is writing this letter to, to the called out ones. Specifically, he's writing to the called out ones that are in Rome. In a literal sense, he's writing to the Romans, but also in a more general sense, he is writing to the church that is not bound by time or location. This would include North Valley Baptist Church. Paul has written this letter to us here in Northeast PA for such a time as this we can see the love of God at work. Christ loved his church by literally laying down his life for it. He showed his love to his church by purchasing her, and now we belong to him. 
We owe him our lives, our service, our allegiance. He is Lord. And if you have turned from your sin and declared Jesus as Lord of your life, then grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.